0: Welcome back to the third episode of Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. The topic this month is point of care ultrasound or POCUS and we have three exciting research papers to share with you. today we have Oliver, one of our Westmead ED residents and a previous cardiac sonographer talking about POCUS in patients presenting in cardiac arrest. Hung, one of our Westmead ED registrars talking about the potential role of ultrasound in diagnosing PE. Finally, we have Pramod, one of our ED consultants talking about the use of POCUS in long bone fractures. (music) We are also very lucky to be joined by clinical toxicologist and ED consultant, Dr. Richard McNulty, and ED consultant, Dr. Kenny Yee. Before we get started, let's do another round the table introduction. I'm Samurda, and I'll be your host today.
1: I'm Shreyas, and I'm back for another month. Hi,
2: I'm Richard McNulty. Hi, uh, my name is Huang. I'm one of the ED registrars.
1: Hi, my name is Pramod, I'm
3: back again for another month.
2: I'm Kit. Also back again for another month.
4: Hi, my name's Oliver. I'm one of the ED residents. Hi, my name's Kenny and I'm here as well.
5: And I'm Caroline. I'm also back for another month.
0: off today with the research paper from Canada by Paul Atkinson et al. It's titled Does Point of Care Ultrasound Use Impact Resuscitation Length, Rates of Intervention and Clinical Outcomes During Cardiac Arrest? So Oliver, did you want to take it away?
6: Sure. So really briefly, um, this paper looked at how POCUS as an adjunct to regular practice influenced resuscitative effort. Uh, The investigators had a look through their health records and asked questions around how no POCUS versus POCUS use affects resuscitative effort and with POCUS use, how seeing cardiac activity affects the resuscitative effort. So we'll start with the methods. Uh, It was a retrospective review of health records over a four year period between 2010 and 2014, and looked at patients who presented to ED with cardiac arrest at a single tertiary healthcare centre in Canada. Inclusion criteria included all cardiac arrest patients, and they excluded patients who were less than 19 years old or their resuscitation ended due to prior advanced care directives or end of life decisions or any inpatient cardiac arrest. Three groups were made, first one being no ultrasound use, second ultrasound with cardiac activity, and then the third group was ultrasound with no cardiac activity. In terms of the POCUS protocol, they clearly stated that they took cardiac, lung, IVC, aorta, and abdomen views. Primary outcome, was around the resuscitative effort, so length of resuscitation and the frequency of interventions, including the rates of administration of epinephrine and endotracheal tube insertion. Secondary clinical outcomes were return of spontaneous circulation and survival to hospital admission and survival to hospital discharge. Now, in regards to the results, they were able to identify 223 patients, and they had similar demographic data when they were subdivided into three groups. In regards to the primary outcome, cardiac activity on ultrasound showed that there was a longer mean duration of resuscitation versus no ultrasound and no cardiac activity on ultrasound. Um, The mean length being 27.33 minutes in the cardiac activity group versus 14.36 minutes and 11.51 minutes, respectively, for no focus and no cardiac activity on focus. In regards to intubation, there was a similar pattern in that 95.23% of patients who had cardiac activity on ultrasound uh, were intubated versus 65.11% and 46.54% in the no ultrasound and no cardiac activity on ultrasound groups. In regards to epinephrine administration, again, a similar pattern, 100% of patients who demonstrated cardiac activity were given epinephrine versus 81.39% and 82.39% in other groups. In terms of secondary outcomes, cardiac activity on ultrasound did show that there were significant higher rates of ROSC versus others. 76.19% of patients uh, had ROSC versus 395 and 19.5% in the no ultrasound and no um, cardiac activity on ultrasound. In regards to survival to hospital admission, 33.3% of patients, the cardiac activity groups survived versus 27.9% and 6.9% no POCUS and no cardiac activity groups. The survival to hospital discharge group showed 9.5% of patients with cardiac activity survived to discharge versus 6.9% and 0.6% in regards to the no POCUS and no cardiac activity groups. So overall, the group showed that cardiac motion increases resuscitative effort in regards to length and interventions versus no ultrasound and no cardiac activity on ultrasound. This behaviour has been observed in previous studies and it could be thought that patients with a low pre-resource probability of ROSC and no cardiac activity would demonstrate a low likelihood of survival and this can um, and may have been used to guide their resource termination, although it's not part of their guidelines. Regarding secondary outcomes in ROSC, um, there may be improvements in rates of ROSC, survival to hospital admission and survival to hospital discharge in patients who have cardiac activity on POCUS. Uh, But the advantage is short-term, as long-term survival is poor, um, but it's still better than those with no cardiac activity. And ROSC exhibits a survival advantage um, for both cardiac activity and patients who have no ultrasound during their resuscitation. And The authors did say that it was difficult to know if the improved outcomes were due to the increase in resuscitative effort um, due to the positive finding of cardiac activity or if POCUS simply just identifies patients who are more likely to survive. I guess the reason why I like the study was that it kind of answers a question or addresses a question that seems obvious in that, um, you know, seeing cardiac activity on ultrasound increases your resuscitation time and interventions and, um, and then really that your resuscitative effort should be on more on chest compressions versus ultrasound because it doesn't seem to have a significant improvement in outcomes when you see cardiac activity with ultrasound.
0: What do you think are the strengths and limitations of this study Were
6: Well, I think the the authors identified um, some of the limitations of the study um, in that um, it's retrospective and unrandomized. And after looking at all the data, there was a relatively low survival rate. Um, In that sense, ultrasound doesn't add much value um, in improving patient outcomes. Um, When they looked through the record, there was a lack of quality control or they couldn't speak to the quality of the focus that was performed. One thing that wasn't really discussed in the paper was the uh, length of downtime prior to the resuscitative effort, which is important. Um, they did mention that bystander CPR or ambulance treatment was given, but there wasn't really detailed. So it doesn't add much guidance to you know our resuscitative efforts when patients hit DED with uh, cardiac arrest. But in regards to the strength, um, they've published a few papers now, and they have a very well protocolized approach to POCUS, with the focus on minimizing their pauses during the ACLS. They clearly defined what cardiac motion was, um, and then. When they were trying to find the cohort they performed uh, power measurements to adequately address their primary outcomes
0: now in this study the actual delays in cpr was not recorded do you think that using pokers in an arrest results in significant delays or interruptions to cpr
4: I guess the first part of your question was, you know, does the use of focus significantly delay resuscitative efforts or does it actually, in the um, current what we call uh, best practice for ACOS, I think there is the potential of that happening and later on we'll be discussing or we'll be sort of having an overview of an article called Coach Red. And the aim of that is to actually think about, you know, what are the limitations of um, POCUS. And one of the biggest limitations is you the need to actually acquire views whilst doing CPR, whilst trying to find other reversible causes and also give them drugs as well. So the one thing of POCUS is that it does add a bit of labour-intensive resources or uh, additional human power as well, and that could divert you from the primary sort of uh, treatment options as well. The second um, issue with it as well is you do need a window of time in order to either re- review the ca- for cardiac or no cardiac activity, or you actually have to be able to record it as well. And that potentially could mean that there's a pause in the CPI and that could lead to potentially further issues um, in terms of uh, delivering adequate AOS as well. Um, the Coach Red uh, protocol is a nice way of um, looking at whether we can sort of decrease or minimise this disruption as well. Um, in order to actually bring this in, it's probably not as easy as just um, introducing it, but it needs a culture and a mentality change as to... Um, introducing this type of protocol into the AOS, whereby people have to be expected to be doing POCUS, but doing that part of POCUS also requires, you know, an understanding in the timing of when it should be done and when it's appropriate to be done in order to minimise these delays as well.
1: Oliver, that actually brings us to an interesting point, which is um, the Coach Red paper, which is actually published by one of the Nepean Emergency Consultants, Vijay Manevel, who's fairly well-known along with Kenny as be being a few of the rare uh, DMUs in, in New South Wales from an ultrasound training perspective. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the Coach Red protocol is um, and how that, I guess, impacts our cardiac arrest management? So
6: I guess Coach Red is an extension of a cognitive aid that's currently used now in our ACLS uh, guidelines that helps incorporate ultrasound into the resuscitation So in terms of the addition of ultrasound, that we'll talk about um, uh, what it originally stood for is uh, rhythm check. And then they've added an E after that. So instead of being coach, it's now coach red. So recording of the echo and echo off is part of the group understanding of what's going to happen with um, the defibrillation, whether it's gonna go ahead or they're gonna dump the shock. And so bringing the ultrasound into the uh, cognitive aid means that everyone can work together to actually improve the efficacy of your ultrasound at the time of ACLS.
1: Yeah, thanks. And I I think that um, that paper you know, while we're not going to sort of do a deep dive into it, I think it neatly found that having that sort of algorithmic approach meant that there was a fairly brief interruption to CPR that wasn't significantly worse than our usual rhythm checks. So I I think it went off the top of my head from six seconds to 11 seconds or something like that. So nothing substantial. So just for our listeners, essentially, instead of the usual coached approach, um, what we would be aiming to do would be to set The ultrasound to record prospectively for 30 seconds. And then during the rhythm check, it would be continued compressions, oxygen away, all else clear, hands off, rhythm check and record echo. And then after that, it would be evaluate the rhythm and decide to shock. And so at that point, you'd be recording a prospective 30 second um, echo snippet that you wouldn't be attempting to interpret in real time. You would either shock or, you know, proceed as usual, and then during the next cycle be interpreting the echo to decide whether there's a reversible cause or cardiac activity and making the next decisions without interrupting CPR.
7: Hi, Richard here. My thoughts on this article, it was really interesting that um, whether you had POCUS or not did not change the survival to hospital admission or survival to discharge, but it did seem to pick up the patients who had ROSC and increase the resuscitation time. So it seems like it it increases the resources that are used in ED, which suggests, you know, why would you do it? Now, I still do a POCUS, but for different reasons. One is, you've often been in the uh, situation where you see that there's a rhythm, but when you actually look at the pictures of the heart, there's nothing moving at all, perhaps just a flicker of a valve, and that lets the team know, although you've got some sort of PEA, uh, there's really no activity there, which might suggest that it's time to, to call it a day. But the other time I do the ultrasound is you're looking for that sort of once-in-a-lifetime tamponade that you can drain. If the patient has a reversible cause, there's no point in continuing doing CPR, CPR, CPR. You have to get the needle in and drain the tamponade. Obviously, most of our arrests are ischemic heart disease uh, because of the society we live in with our Western diet. But um, so we, I do it, you know, to pick up a pneumothorax or a tamponade that we can drain. And the other reason is just to keep your skills up. Right, Kenny? Because uh,
4: the day you really want to, you don't want to have not done an ultrasound for six months. Um, that's correct, Richard. I mean, in the sense that the hardest part about this is that ultrasound is a skill that you've just got to continue to do and you've got to continue to actually stay up to date with it as well. And you find that the times when you do rely on it and you do need it the most You just have to make sure that you have the skill set and experience to actually identify what is normal and what is abnormal as well. Just another comment that I had on the study was related to the
3: outcome measures that they used. Just thinking back on sort of how I think you want to phrase these studies, I mean, there's so much emphasis on now good survival to hospital discharge in most CPR studies, be them prospective or retrospective analyses. I didn't find that the primary outcomes in this study were very patient-orientated at all. I also found that it was really interesting that they used endotracheal tube intubation and adrenaline administration as in interventions that they were measuring uh, as a result of POCUS use, and there's now sort of evidence circulating around that neither of those things are actually particularly good in arrest. We know that early intubation does not affect overall outcomes in cardiac arrests and delays during that peri-intubation process can often worsen outcomes for patients. There's obviously a lot of, I think we still lack a great deal of understanding in what adrenaline actually does in the context of cardiac arrest as well. And so I think both of those are poor surrogate markers for your quality of resuscitation that you're actually doing. I guess on a retrospective analysis, that's probably the best you can extract from the data. And so that's probably an inherent limitation of the study and the way they decided to perform it. And then I would almost argue that their secondary outcomes were probably more patient-orientated and much more informative about what the POCUS is actually trying to achieve in the grander context of resuscitative medicine. And I guess to that end, the results are reasonably unsurprising. It doesn't make terribly much of a difference. I guess what really stood out to me, though, was it was pretty good at picking up patients who had a POCUS, demonstrated no cardiac activity, seemed to, and correct me if I'm wrong, Oliver, have their resuscitative efforts stopped quite a bit sooner, like significantly sooner. Um, And I think one of the great challenges as an emergency clinician myself is trying to accurately prognosticate which resuscitations are futile. That's also a very important part of acute medicine and what we do, and I don't think we're very good at it. I think there's a lot of protocols out there that assist you in prognosticating, and you know, a patient factors, disease factors, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess that sort of speaks to what Richard was saying, that you can use it to let the team know that maybe ongoing resuscitation might not be useful because the POCUS has demonstrated no cardiac activity, um, and those patients tend to do very, very poorly. And so I think that's my perspective on, on the paper. I was just very interested in sort of what they focused on as their primary and secondary outcomes.
7: Thanks, Pramod. Um With regard to survival to hospital discharge... They didn't tell us what the quality of life was. There was no sort of modified rank and scale or some equivalent. I believe that there is a thing a fate worse than death. Yeah. You no, know, that's definitely if that's they're, definitely they're true.
8: vegetables
3: or, or white. So And uh, I think that's the other thing. We're so ignorant to what happens to our patients once they leave the back door of RED. And speaking to a lot of intensivists over my career, it's very, very interesting to see what their perspective is on some of these patients and how difficult and how complex withdrawing care is on some of these cases and how that can drain back-end resources as well. So it is a complex decision that has massive ramifications.
7: Every family
1: member says that their dad's a fighter. Keep going.
3: Yeah, no, it's definitely the case. It makes it very tricky.
1: Right. What you've said raises an interesting point. Actually, this was probably the most interesting thing for me about this paper was that Obviously, there was a significant discrepancy in outcome between cardiac activity found and no cardiac activity found. Partly that may have related to effort, but I'm interested in the use of cardiac activity as a prognosticator. Obviously, well, having had a look through the paper, we really don't know if there was a systematic difference between the cardiac activity found and the no cardiac activity found groups. We have no idea what the difference in downtime was between the groups. And there was really very little information in terms of the discrepancy and comorbidities between the two groups, although their mean ages and genders were similar. On that note, and in fairness, this, this paper wasn't really designed to answer this question, do you guys have any idea of how useful and how accurate cardiac activity on POCUS is as a prognostic marker of the resuscitation? And then, as a secondary question, just you know, from across the room, from an experience point of view, and you know, our, all of our consultants might have some information about this. And also, Oliver, having been an Echo Tech, you might know. Um, I'm interested to know what VF or VT looks like. In, on POCUS when there is cardiac activity versus when there isn't?
3: There's so many confounders that are just not accounted for in this paper. The paper You can't derive anything from the paper to answer that specific question. The way I think about it in my head is there's a lot of this like pseudo-PEA stuff that goes around and whether or not asystole and is very fine VF and th- these differentiations that are impossible to make on the analysis of a single lead on a defibrillator machine And maybe there's an argument to be made that those patients who you think might have either an asystolic rhythm uh, and wouldn't ordinarily shock, but then when you pop the probe on, they've got some vague fibrillating activity. Maybe they're in some very fine VF. And we know now that a shockable versus a non-shockable rhythm does change your overall prognosis and, and obviously reflects different underlying etiologies. That's how I make the link between... I don't know if that's got any firm basis in, in theoretical concepts. Uh, Kenny, I'd be interested to know sort of what, what you think and how you interpret the cardiac activity. So say if someone, if I give you a case where you've got a lady who's arrested and you're getting um, asystolic uh, rhythms on there, uh, but you d- but in your coached algorithm that you do, you do a POCUS and you see cardiac activity, what are you thinking is happening on a physiological level for this, for this patient?
4: So on a physiological level, then you have to think, you know, there's some sort of a discrepancy between what you see on the screen and what you see on the ultrasound. And then you just try and figure out, well, is this actually one, you know, like you said, promote fine VF that's actually masking as a PEA, or two, you actually got some sort of a disorganised activity that you're actually just not picking up on the leads because whether it's low voltage or whether there's a, a habitus a body habitus problem with the patient that you're actually not getting enough electrical activity. They're the hard ones in the sense that, I still think that while you can have a prognostication with um, shockable versus non-shockable, I think there are many other factors that also take into consideration to how far how much intervention I do. And I think the confounding factors for me relating to this will be how long they've been down for, how long their downtime is, what other therapies they've had, um, how long do they take to get to me, because I think they're also very important factors as well. Um, It may change some of my treatments, and the treatments, like you said, is... Maybe I would and most of the time I would give them that shock as well. But I think that um, Richard brings a good point in the sense that I use it more for its negative predictive value uh, rather than its positive predictive value because I think that with seeing cardiac activity, the issues with it is there's so many other confounders that actually affect its long-term use as well that I think that I'm unsure whether POCUS has a significant role in that. Psychologically, it does because as we can see in the paper that people are – doing and performing longer interventional processes on it, and we can see that quite clearly in that as well, whether it's a psychological um, uh, thing to uh, proceed or continue or whether, you know, um, POCUS actually does filter out certain types of patients into certain subgroups as well.
1: So is there, Kenny, a decent evidence body that um, no cardiac activity is a good negative predictor? And similarly, on that note, just to flip the sort of situation that um, Promote presented to you, if you had someone who, let's just say, had VT on the rhythm check but no cardiac activity, would that be someone that's still worth shocking or would that be someone where you would deem the shock to be futile?
4: So I'll answer your first question, sherez uh, Know, is negative uh, no cut activity a useful marker? I think just like many of the other tools we use, it's actually an adjunct to our decision making process as well. So some people also use a venous blood gas, looking at the lactic acidemia as to see seeing how severe it is, looking at the uh, entitled CO2. And I think that using no cut activity is also one of these tools. Where, but um, there's not just one absolute you know yes or no answer. I think it's just taking into consideration the whole all these other different information and you're making that process on that. I'm, not, I'm unsure whether there is actually um, a body or a recommendation so that because you don't see cardiac activity, um, then the process of, uh, of ACOS should be ceased. And I'm, I'm not sure about the answer, but I think that it's very useful that it can confirm what your other thoughts are. And if you have other either investigations or other clinical assessments that suggest you shouldn't continue, this actually adds a bit more icing on the cake with that as well. Um, the second um, part of your question was, um, what if I see something like VT on the screen and yet I don't see any cardiac activity on ultrasound as well? And that's difficult because I guess part of pulseless VT and part of uh, you know ventricular fibrillation is that you may not see cardiac activity. And the reason for that is because that is the or cardiac output at least. And that's the reason for why you're going to need to shock them. I think in those situations, um, my personal beliefs would be I would try and shock them into some sort of a rhythm that's... Um, either non-VT or non-VF, and see whether you do get any activity or any cardiac output out of it afterwards as well, Um, mainly because during the process of having electrical disorganisation, I think it's quite hard or quite difficult to be making that assessment on the patient as well.
7: Yeah, thanks, Kenny. Um, I'm just thinking about this idea of um, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So here we've got POCUS, no cardiac activity, and they found uh, less ROSC. A great way of not getting ROSC is to stop the resuscitation. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, imagine this study. You'd have to do a study where no matter if there was activity or not, you go for, say, 10, 15 minutes and then see what happens and see who gets ROSC, admitted to hospital, discharged from hospital. But the problem is the ethics of doing that. It, you know, I don't know if you get that past an ethics committee. And even if you did find a difference between... Uh, cardiac activity and not, no cardiac activity in the prognosis. There would be other factors, comorbidities, downtime, quality of resus, how many adrenalines, all that sort of stuff. So it would be really difficult to do that study, both ethically and um, with the confounders. So I'm not sure whether that study has actually been done and ethically whether we could do it. And with the VT, VF question, um, if you're a fan of emergency medicine abstracts, in the last few months, there's been a few studies on uh, what to do with refractory VT and VF. Um, there was a pre-hospital study where after three shocks, I think it was, um, they changed the pad position or did sequential, double sequential defibrillation. So people are starting to address that question of what to do with the VF, VT that doesn't respond to
8: a shock or two. Just for our listeners, we actually have a bonus episode that we'll cover uh, a number of those uh, those issues.
1: That episode will be coming out actually fairly shortly, so have a listen out for Dr. Kit Rowe covering that very topic.
5: I guess just going back to what Trace was saying about whether we can use cardiac standstill on ultrasound as a prognosticator. Um, I mean, I don't have much experience personally in, you know, running a resus or using that as, you know, a decision maker. Um, but I find it interesting that with the data that we've been given here, we've got a cohort of 180 people that did receive a POCUS study. And one ninth of those had cardiac activity and had quite good outcomes. And then we've got a group of 43 no POCUS patients that, whose outcomes were not quite as good but similar in some measures as the cardiac activity group. Um, but then the no cardiac activity group have significantly much worse outcomes. And I know none of these groups can really be well compared because we don't know their comorbidities or their downtime or anything else. But within those 43 no-pocus patients, if you kind of extrapolated that one-ninth of them may have cardiac activity, then the eight-ninths that didn't did a lot better than the no cardiac activity group. And I wonder if that's because they did stop the resuscitation earlier Um or if there was other other things that changed their management after seeing that no cardiac activity on the ultrasound. I don't know if the consultants can comment on that.
1: Richard's words about self-fulfilling prophecy are ringing in my ears right now.
5: It seems as if um, it depended
7: if the consultant could do an ultrasound. So there's a convenience sample there. And plus, if you're going to do ultrasound at all, there's a selection bias. Maybe we thought, oh, I'm not going to do ultrasound on this guy. Um, or maybe they're just doing so well, you don't need an ultrasound, you're going to keep going anyway, it's not really clear. So I don't think we can answer that question, unfortunately.
5: Yeah, and the numbers are probably too discrepant as well in terms of the size of the groups and all of that. But I just thought that was interesting.
0: That was a great discussion with lots of learning points. What would be the take-on points for our listeners, Oliver?
6: Well, I guess the take-on points from this is just to note that um, seeing cardiac activity uh, in general without a structure will uh, increase your resuscitative effort. Um, and to be mindful that you uh, may have a negative cognitive bias attached to not seeing cardiac activity on ultrasound. But mostly it revolves around the fact that it, ultrasound should be used as a adjunct to your clinical decision-making um, and should not get in the way of your resuscitative effort, especially chest compressions. So if you're going to do it, make sure it's well protocolized and everybody is on board with it.
0: That's great. Thank you. move on to the next research paper, which is from the US by James Daly et al. It's titled Increased Sensitivity of Focused Cardiac Ultrasound for Pulmonary Embolism in Emergency Department Patients with Abnormal Vital Signs. Um, So Hung, do you want to take it away? Yeah, thanks.
2: Um, So this paper was a prospective observational study, essentially looking at the diagnostic utility of certain characteristics of focused cardiac ultrasound for PE in patients particularly with tachycardia and or hypertension, and also a particular emphasis on tricuspid, annular plane, systolic excursion, or TAPSI for short. Uh, so in terms of population, this study recruited patients from April 2016 to November 2018. 136 patients were enrolled uh, from six urban academic uh, hospitals or academic EDs in the US, both the East Coast and West Coast. The inclusion criteria involved adults 18 years or above tachycardia with a heart rate greater than 110 beats per minute and or hypotension with a systolic less than 90. A subset analysis was subsequently uh, undertaken on patients with uh, a heart rate greater than 110. The final inclusion criteria predominantly was um, any patients planned for CTPA for evaluation of possible PE in the ED. Patients that were excluded included prisoners, uh, patients under guardianship, non-English speaking patients, and those where the investigator could not obtain any views um, in terms of cardiac-focused ultrasound. Uh, In terms of the, I guess, the intervention, the bedside echoes were performed by 10 ultrasound-trained emergency doctors, uh, which involved seven consultants uh, with fellowships in ultrasound, as well as three trainees, I guess, training in ultrasound as well. And they also included three third-year medical students who had subsequent training in cardiac-focused ultrasound as well, uh, trained up to a minimum standard prior to the start of the study. The components that they assessed on these ultrasounds uh, included measurement of the tapsy, with abnormal being defined as less than 2 centimetres of uh, movement compared to the standardised 1.7 centimetres. Further components included right ventricular enlargement, which was defined as the visual appearance of the right ventricle being equal or greater to than the size of the left ventricle. Also, another component was septal flattening, defined as flattening of the interventricular septum, usually seen on the parasternal uh, short axis. Also, tricuspid regurgitation, which in this study was defined at any degree of regurgitation at all, as being defined as a positive uh, sign. Um, and finally, McConnell sign, which uh, involves hypokinesis um, of the uh, right ventricle uh, with apical sparing. All these measurements were obtained on the standard parasternal long axis, parasternal short axis, apical four chamber and sub views, which is essentially a Bell's protocol. Just for everyone's information, the TAPSI is a measurement that is usually obtained in the apical four chamber view and is obtained by placing the M-mode cursor across the lateral tricuspid valve annulus um, and measures its movement across systole and diastole. In terms of how they defined a positive case was if any components of the aforementioned cardiac ultrasound were abnormal, then that was considered positive, while a negative result as defined as all components being completely normal. And the inter-rater, I guess in terms of uh, making sure that the ultrasounds were done reliably, there was blinded review of the images in 114 of the 136 patients, just to ensure that uh, there was quality assurance. Interestingly, if there was a disagreement between the interpretations, then the interpretation at the bedside was utilised as a result um, in the final data analysis. In terms of comparing to the gold standard, so all subjects in the study um, had a CTPA performed with a positive result being defined as um, any sort of filling defect identified by a radiologist with each investigation in terms of ultrasound versus CTPA being blinded to each other. In terms of outcomes that were found from the study, of the 136 patients enrolled, 37 were diagnosed with P on the CTPA. All patients in the study, as defined by the inclusion criteria, were tachycardic up over 100 uh, bits per minute or hypotensive less than uh, 90 millimetres of mercury. Of the 37 patients identified to have a PE, six had uh, hypotension as defined by their criteria. 28 were normotensive with evidence of right heart strain and three were normotensive without evidence of right heart strain. What they found was that the sensitivity of cardiac ultrasound for PE in patients with um, heart rates greater than 100 or systolic pressure less than 90 was determined to be about 92%, a confidence interval of about 20 points from 78 to 98%, but a kind of middling sort of specificity in terms of 64%. The most sensitive component in terms of secondary analysis that they did uh, was identified to be the TAPSI with a bit of lower testing threshold in terms of a 2 centimeter movement in diastole and systole, uh, was found to be 88% sensitive and 73% specific finding PEs. When they compared it to using the traditional threshold of 1.7 centimetres, this uh, sensitivity decreased down to 67%. What they also noted was that the most specific component uh, in the ultrasound in terms of finding PEs was McConnell sign, with a 99% specificity, but uh, quite a low sensitivity at 35%. And of note, septal flattening was also 93% specific as well, so pretty reasonable. In terms of a subset analysis, they elected to analyse patients with a heart rate greater than 110 beats per minute, which involved 98 of the 136 subjects. And cardiac-focused ultrasound was considered to be 100% sensitive in finding patients with PEs, um, but with a specificity of about 63%, so similar to the other group.
0: So, what are the uh, strengths and limitations of this study?
2: Uh, so, in terms of strengths, I think uh, one of the good things that occurred was that there was a reasonably small group of investigators in terms of those performing the ultrasounds. Um, so, that decreases the interoperator variability. There was a kind of realistic sort of training to each of these investigators as well. There was, I guess, didactic training initially and then uh, observed ultrasounds um, just to ensure that quality assurance was um, undertaken And this is also quite realistic in terms of it's not uh, an extensive sort of course that they're required to do. Um, It's something that can be kind of trained into all emergency physicians, essentially. So it's to kind of extrapolate that as well. And um, another good point is that 104 of the 136 cases had the images reviewed by the site principal investigators just to make sure quality was at least as similar as possible. I guess one of the issues and limitations is that um, all the subjects were from academic hospitals in the US, so they're quite urbanised. Um, And so there's definitely going to be a selection bias in terms of the population of patients that they will obtain. And obviously it's not the biggest study. It needs much more, I guess, investigations in terms of a larger sample size. And I think it just needs to have a bit more further studies in terms of um, trying to find distinct correlations and causations.
0: I have a question. If you had a patient with pulmonary hypertension secondary to COPD that comes in with shortness of breath and pleuritic chest pain, how would you go about applying the results of this study? I guess, um, would chronic right heart failure lead to a positive result?
2: Yeah, so I guess the difficulty is right heart strain is something that is just something that you see objectively. Um, It's something that can occur with various different things. So whether it's a PE pulmonary hypertension from COPD or asthma or any chronic lung disease, essentially. I guess in terms of being able to differentiate between uh, a chronic uh, right heart strain and an acute right heart strain is extremely difficult. Uh, That requires a significant amount of training. And it's something that's probably not realistic for us to be able to differentiate between in uh, an acute setting either. So I think they will definitely confound and I guess essentially provide you with a positive result uh, in terms of finding suggestions of right heart strain on a, on a cardiac ultrasound.
0: What are your thoughts, Kenny?
4: Um, so there are a few thoughts that are going on in my head as we speak as well. I mean, the biggest one that I think is I'm unsure uh, whether it would necessarily make a big investigation difference to me as well. Um, the one concern I have as well is whilst it can be used as a tool for diagnosis of PE, I'm unsure whether there's going to be a significant management difference as well. And I would have liked to see in the paper whether there was, if they actually said that, you know, these subgroup of population were diagnosed with PE, whether they then went on to more aggressive therapy, whether it was just anticoagulation that they went to, or whether there was actually thoughts or considerations for either systemic thrombolysis or localised thrombolysis as well. And I think that my extrapolation or my use of, you know, focus in diagnosing pulmonary emboli, Hopefully it would be if there is a consideration that I could make a immediate or life-changing management plan, um, then I would consider this as a bit more useful as well. Um, there are also concerns as well in the sense that it, the sensitivity was actually quite high, but I wasn't sure whether it was actually high enough for me to be comfortable that to say that this person has completely had a PE excluded or this person has had a PE excluded to a degree that I'm able to pursue a different uh, you know, investigative modality for them as well. Just on
3: the sensitivity and specificity that's quoted in this study, I was just having some thoughts when you were talking about it, Hung. So I didn't really understand how CT scans worked in PE until I actually sat down and studied it for my fellowship exam. But it's very interesting to sort of read how they did their, their derivations of sensitivity and specificity here. So I guess the way to think about it is they've derived their numbers from using a ctpa as the gold standard imaging diagnosis but in actual fact the pipehead 2 study done in sort of 2017 has quoted sensitivities of 85% and specificities of 96% for a ctpa for the diagnosis of a pe and the gold standard that's sort of routinely agreed upon is pulmonary angiography which is something that we don't actually do outside of the context of someone who's being planned to have an interventional procedure What do you do with those numbers? Well, the way to interpret sensitivity and specificity data in an undifferentiated patient population is to look at the prevalence of disease and what we call pretest probability. And so you need to look at the patient in front of you, someone who's getting actively treated for malignancy, uh, on active hormonal therapy, hypotensive, tachycardic, and hypoxic. That will change the subsequent sensitivity and specificity values of all the investigations that you do. That's why we do well-scoring on our patients before we decide on the imaging modality and then the combination of their pretest probability plus the results of the test will determine the likelihood of them having a PE. The specificity, then, that's 100% in this study. I'd probably contend that, and I don't know if you could accurately derive that because the comparator is not a gold standard comparator. It's not a, a CTPA, is not a gold standard comparator for the diagnosis of a PE. It just still has flaws within itself, and so you have to be a bit careful with that, and similarly, the sensitivity as well. Um, and so I just thought that was an interesting point to add on to what you were saying, Kenny, uh, with the sensitivity not being accurate enough for you to be confident in ruling out PE in this context.
4: And if you actually look at it, the characteristics which they have for diagnosis of PE, and we're talking about, you know, the TAPS here, the right ventricular enlargement, the septal flattening, and the tricuspid regurg and the McConnell sign, I mean, you probably realise that a lot of patients will have these signs and they do not actually have PE as well. I mean, interestingly, the their subgroup of population was, I think the age was roughly about 55 to 60 as well. And I would have thought that, you know, that age group, you're starting to get more and more other comorbidities that are in play. I think that one food for thought would be if you actually did this focus examination on a younger group of population, then its utility may be more useful because in the younger group, you may not ever find these abnormalities and if you do find an abnormality then it might be one either more specific for what you're looking for as well.
1: That's actually a useful thought because really it's the younger group where you don't really want to do the CTPA as well as opposed to the 70-year-old metastatic cancer patient where what's another scan um, in the context of them. Oliver, I saw you raise your eyebrows a couple of times as whom was presenting um, the methodology of that paper. Most notably was when he mentioned that any one of those individual findings was enough for them to call it a positive result. So I I guess it's kind of unsurprising in a way that they had a relatively high sensitivity and relatively low specificity, given that that was the threshold that they went with. Um, I just wonder, given your experience as a sonographer, what is your take on the way that they've sort of set set the bar for this study? Very good question. So I guess
6: when looking at the the measures that they're using to identify echo positive uh, pulmonary embolism, there are only really two situations where I would kind of rest my hat on. So that being the um, septal flattening and McConnell's sign. So, I mean, when it comes to TAPSI, TAPSI is, you know, it's done from the apical window. So there is uh, variability in its measurements and the accuracy based on whether you're in the right spot or not. And typically it's difficult to get that um, in these patients. The second thing is that you know right ventricular enlargement and tricuspid regurgitation, they, they can be seen quite a lot. And in fact, I could probably go to any patient in the room, or all of you, and I could make your right ventricle large. It's quite easy to do. And so um, there are technical limitations to the assessment of these, like any kind of um, echo measurement. But things like septal flattening and McConnell sign, they have greater specificity. So, when you're looking at these echoes, it all comes down to what was mentioned before: the pretest probability. So, in a young patient who was previously not breathless and has no other comorbidities, septal flattening is really concerning because you know you're talking about a dramatic rise in right um, right-sided pressures. Um, so, this patient will be very sick. So, your pretest probability of PE will be very high, regardless. And something like McConnell sign, you don't see it very often. But when you do see it, those patients are very sick as well. So your pretest probability of, of a positive McConnell sign will push you towards PE. But again, it's very uh, specific. So if you don't see it, it's unlikely to be a very large PE. So it doesn't talk about small PEs uh, and the much smaller sub-segmental PEs. But if you do see it, it, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a pulmonary embolism. But if you're really thinking about it, you know you're going to CTPA them and also. In, in regards to the methodology, I saw that the medical students received an hour didactic training as well as an hour scanning. and uh, you know for a lot of us out there who are non-echo trained, that's kind of all we've had. And so I would rest my hat less on measurements but more on those you know gross findings that you would see to kind of use as an adjunct to your clinical decision making.
1: That certainly reflects my experience as a unacc- unaccredited, Player with the ultrasound machine, I definitely don't like to measure anything.
7: I just wanted to provide, um, you know, a step back, look at the big picture context. When someone's sick and they're in shock, you know, you're looking for lots of different diseases. You're not just looking at, at PE. Um, I appreciate we have to have papers looking at this modality's uh, utility in disease X, but in reality, the patient's in front of you. And if they're in shock, you're going to be looking for a number of different things, not just um, PE. So in the absence of PE signs uh, on the echo, you're going to go looking elsewhere. And if you find something else like whatever dilated aortic root and regurgitation of dissection, fluid in the chest or belly, AAA, IVC is collapsing and they're in cardiogenic shock versus good contractivity and you think they're in vasoplegic shock... All of this changes the the post-test probability. So I think the idea that you don't find PE signs, hopefully you're going to find some other signs which really direct to thinking about treating the patient and what the diagnosis is. It's just that sort of big picture view that you're not just going to do the echo looking for PE, you're going to be looking for other things as well.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think um, remembering that very rarely the question that you're asking is, is this patient only got a PE? Uh, it's more about what's actually going on and will this probe help me figure that out. I think some interesting points were raised also just prior to uh, to to the to sort of getting into your discussion about use of this maybe in a regional or remote context, um, as opposed to where most of us work, which is either in metropolitan EDs or tertiary EDs that have a 24-7 CT service. I don't know, I'm a bit conflicted. Uh, n- knowing now about the risks of thrombolysis, especially empirical thrombolysis, in patients who are already... I mean, let's be real. The vast majority of patients with big PEs are going to have other comorbid conditions that are going to predispose them to the more serious hemorrhagic complications of systemic thrombolysis. Hence, why catheter guided thrombolysis is now a thing uh, for pulmonary embolism. I still wonder whether, if I'd seen this, if I'd saw a patient uh, and then had a, they had a very dilated right ventricle or had some of these ultrasound uh, eponymous ultrasound signs, whether I would. The question really then is, what do you do with that? Right, you have that information now. Uh, what are you going to do? Um, I'd just be curious to know, sort of going around the table, what people would do. Would you still push for a CT scan prior to initiating treatment? Uh, would you empirically thrombolize these patients, knowing full well that the hemodynamic effects and benefits of clot busting medication like thrombolysis isn't immediate? And, you know, you're going to be sort of still 60 minutes before you see any sort of hemodynamic improvements for some of these medications. And I guess that really boils down to the bottom line of the paper. Is it going to make a difference to what you do? Uh, in that context what, what do you think Hung? i'm interested to know what your, what your thought is having read this
7: while you're thinking i'll tell you a little anecdote which i know doesn't count for much we had a middle-aged guy hypoxic in shock in recess i did an echo and i found clot in the atrium and it made me feel so much better about thrombolyzing him in ed prior to scanning It just makes you feel so much better. Oh, it's got to be a PE, right? If you just have the shock hypoxic, oh my God, we're going to thrombolize this guy. I hope I'm doing the right thing. You know, it's just that cognitive comfort level. So yeah, I'm all for doing the ultrasound. Um, But he was unstable. You know what I mean? If you find big time echo findings of PE in a stable patient, then you're not going to run into urgent thrombolysis. You know what I mean? going to get a scan and go to HDU. So it might swing you to HDU versus the ward.
4: <laughs> and I agree with Richard as well. So I think there are situations that I go through in my head that I would say I definitely would thrombolize. And the biggest uh, condition I would say is that you see something that basically resembles a clot either in the right atrium or the right ventricle and it's bobbing around and you've got evidence of right heart strain and their pre-test probability of it was already saying that, hey, I think that, you know, pulmonary embolio was a likelihood as well they become hemodynamically unstable, then I would actually just empirically thrombolize. But as as Richard mentions, if they were stable enough to actually get a definitive or get what we think is a CTPA as a much more of a specific scan, then I would say these situations I might still defer it as well. I've had situations whereby I've I've had found someone who's had right heart strain, can't see the clot in the lung, and I look for a clot quickly somewhere else, even one of the lower limb veins as well, in those situations I haven't sometimes haven't been able to find the DVT. And in those situations I tend not to thrombolise. In the ones where I have found the DVT, I've been at two minds whether they thrombolize thrombolise them because even though I found a DVT, I wasn't sure whether that was the only cause of their actual unwellness or whether the DVT was as a result of whatever primary pathology they had and because they've been immobilized for such a long period of time that they've developed a DVT as a complication as well.
7: Just with regard to the risk of thrombolizing someone and giving them an intracranial hemorrhage, we're familiar with the data uh, from stroke. If you thrombolize, it's about 6% or something, right? But if you're not having a stroke, the incidence of intracranial hemorrhage is much lower. It might be just, you know, 1% or 2%. So um, if you're thrombolizing for the PE, don't think that there's this 6% chance they're going to have an intracranial hemorrhage. It's much lower, but it's, it's still not zero, <laughs> but it's a bit better.
1: Kenny does raise an interesting point. I've certainly seen a case of a patient that came in hypoxic and tachycardic, but incidentally that patient also had a blue leg, and when I had a look at his leg rather than having a look at his heart, um, I found a gigantic chunky clot sitting in his common femoral vein, and I think that you know that patient still got a CTPA, but if that patient wound up in my resus bay and was hypotensive and you know unstable and I didn't feel very comfortable taking him the three metres across the corridor to the uh, CAT scanner in Westmead ED, I think b- being able to see the clot in the common femoral vein and then looking at their heart and saying, oh, there's McConnell sign positive or "Oh, there's a very dilated right ventricle would be probably enough of a combination of factors for me to thrombolize them.
2: I guess the issue that we kind of run into is in these sorts of patients, you would have a high pretest probability in terms of expecting to find these sorts of signs. The, the study that w- we presented it has a very sort of generic um, sort of inclusion criteria, and all the findings that they had were very just kind of broad and very inclusive, like a, a tapsy of like two is it's quite a low sort of threshold in terms of finding things. And I think the, the biggest thing that I think for us uh, in terms of the situation where we'd run into a problem would be in those patients where they are hemodynamically unstable and they can't make it to a scanner. I guess in this study, it was just a very small proportion that actually required HDU or ICU sort of care uh, with only about 30 of the, or 29 patients of the 136. So I guess you can't really extrapolate anything from this study in terms of applying it to those more critically unwell patients. Um, and as we all kind of mentioned before, that the patients that you would thrombolize, you're already kind of thinking, oh, I'm probably going to thrombolize this patient before you put an ultrasound probe on them anyway. So at the end of the day, um, I don't think there's enough there to kind of really change
1: how we kind of approach it. Hung, you just did an ultrasound term as an ultrasound reg. How good are your tapsy measuring skills? If they are good, which I wouldn't be surprised, you know, you're very good. Um, how long did it take you to get good at measuring TAPSI's?
2: So I did ultrasound for six months, uh, part-time, so two ultrasound days a week. We did it with one of the, I guess quite often, at least once a month, with one of our great pornography educators, Tina Cullen, who's really good at um, echoes. And I would still say my tapsies are terrible. Um, It took a long time, coming from pretty much no ultrasound experience, to at least get adequate Bell's Windows, just to see things that I want to see. But then looking back when we started looking at trying to do measurements, that's a whole different sort of sphere. Like trying to actually get measurements, um, accurate measurements, is extremely difficult just because you need very specific windows, you need very specific um, sort of, I guess, compliance with the patient in terms of their body habits as well as them um, actually being able to kind of do the manoeuvres that you want them to do as well. So it's all well and true, all great theoretically if we could get these views everybody but I guess coming from the experience of doing an ultrasound term I just find that it would be very difficult for it to be standardized across all emergency
0: physicians.
1: What about McConnell's sign or septal flattening or RV dilation? Um,
2: I guess septal flattening I think there are um, I guess issues in terms of in a patient with a normal height you can make it so that it looks like they have septal flattening Um, but it's all about experience in terms of making sure that you're aware, you know how to kind of uh, adjust the images so that um, you know you're in the most optimal position and you've got the right um, sort of angle on your probe. In terms of McConnell sign, never seen it.
0: What would be your take-home points for our listeners?
2: Uh, I guess in terms of cardiac ultrasound in PEs, there's still quite a long way to go. We don't have any sort of thresholds to make those sort of diagnostic decisions for kind of those smaller PEs. Um, but when you do see, put an ultrasound probe on in an undifferentiated patient who's quite unstable, got the more specific signs in terms of the McConnell signs and the septal wall flattening, that's when you push your kind of diagnostic uh, pathways down towards the, the PEs and the management pathways down towards uh, the PEs. Uh, but that doesn't say that if you don't see them, that it should completely be removed from your cognitive thoughts because you have to put it into context of the whole situation so I think at this stage, there's just not enough evidence and there's not enough uh, sort of, uh, I guess, guidance from these focused ultrasound sort of protocols to actually make any changes to our decisions at this stage. Um, and there'll be a lot more, there'll need to be a lot more sort of investigation into, into this kind of sphere before we change anything.
0: a new segment for our podcast, and it's called Interlude.
7: Hi, everyone. Thanks for your time today. Um, By popular demand, uh, in the mailbag, we have decided to introduce this Interlude segment. It's just something to break up the rhythm, just a bit of a different perspective. What we're going to do in the interlude is we're not going to discuss the topic of the day. We're going to do something fun, educational, and exciting. Today, I'm going to be discussing a classic article, but it can be whatever you want. We can do an article to illustrate a concept uh, just to break up and and have a bit of fun, okay? So today, I'm going to be discussing John Yanidis' article called Why Most Research Findings Are False. Of course, you all know this article because you've all read it. But to introduce the interlude segment, we're going to have a little interlude music. Today I've selected Mascagni's interlude from the opera Cavalleria Rusticana, my favourite one-act opera. So we're going to play 30 seconds of that music now for your home entertainment. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm open to requests for the next piece of music that you like for next segment. So today we're going to discuss uh, John Unitas' article, Why Most Research Findings Are False. This article is the most commonly quoted and downloaded article in the history of articles. It's been downloaded 4 million times, I think a million by me, and it's been cited 4,000 times. John Yanidas is the current rock star of medical research. He does research about medical research, which is why he's so fascinating. He's a Greek-born guy who now works at Stanford. I think he's more of an epidemiologist rather than, say, a cardiologist or whatever. And if you don't know this guy, tonight you have to watch his YouTube lectures, other articles that are really interesting. He did research on how private funding, corporate influence in articles actually increases the probability of positive research findings. Another article he did, he looked at blockbusting articles that had very positive, exciting research findings, and then looked. he followed up how reproducible those findings were, and he found that, he called it the proteus phenomenon, that these big initial positive findings often were not reproducible. So you need to go and read all these articles. So today we're discussing why most research findings are false. Now, this article is a little bit theoretical, and it's really disheartening in the sense that you you see a positive finding in an article and you think, well, it's probably true. We're all aware of biases and errors in research, but this one really brings home the idea that uh, the majority of findings that we see probably are not true. Now, the probability that a research claim is true depends on lots of things. We're all familiar with study power and bias, but it also depends on how many other groups are studying the same question. You can imagine the more groups there are, the more studies have been done, the more questions are being asked, you're going to stumble across statistically significant findings and they're going to get published. Um, So there's a bit of publication bias there as well. So a research finding is less likely to be true true when the studies are smaller. When the effect size is smaller, then the statistical variation may be what's responsible for finding the positive outcome. If you ask more questions, you're going to get more positive findings. When there's financial interest, as I've suggested with his other papers that he's shown and when more teams are involved, uh, chasing statistical significance and uh, asking lots of questions. When you read an article, you have no idea really how many questions were asked unless they tell you, unless they pre-publish their statistical plan. You don't really know how many questions they asked in order to get that 10 questions that they're presenting to you in the paper. And of course, they're going to present it in a good light. You're going to know about the statistically significant findings And then you add to that publication bias. Uh, A lot of negative studies are left in the file drawer, get rejected. The journals want positive findings. You want to read positive findings. The authors want to publish positive findings. So it goes on and on. Uh, An example he gives is if a hypothesis has a pretest probability of 50% and then the article shows that there's a positive finding, um, in the long term, that will only have uh, a probability of being true 85% of the time. So the fact that you're reading about a positive finding, even if it's probably true to begin with, it doesn't guarantee that it's true. Now, I have to say that because we're doctors, we tend to think of studies that involve patients. But this article doesn't just talk about clinical examples. He's talking about the whole of medical research, which includes lab studies Genetic studies, high-throughput studies, looking for genetic associations. Is this gene involved in disease X, et cetera? So he's not just talking about um, clinical studies. So overall, it's quite depressing to think that uh, a lot of the findings we read about are false. There's so much bias. Please read the paper. He goes through different models, you know, different estimates of bias and different estimates of pretest test probability. And he's got graphs showing what the post-test probability are of the research finding being true so overall a bit depressing but it's something you have to know about so i just encourage you to uh, read that paper anyway we'll think of something else to discuss in the, the next interlude hope you enjoyed it
0: It's time for the final paper for this episode, a systemic review and a meta-analysis by Lucas Shatia et al. called Use of of Point-of-Care Ultrasound in Long Bone Fractures. And Pramod is here to tell us more.
3: I I thought I'd just pick something a little bit less acute. Uh, I find most of my shifts I'm just sort of swimming in the miasma of subacuity. In terms of when I pick up my ultrasound probe, it's very rarely in the context of an acute resuscitation. So I think this paper sort of piqued my interest from that perspective. Thanks for this introduction, Samoda. So just going through PICO kind of narrative for this meta-analysis. So we've got a population which was specifically touted as being long bone fractures, which they defined as fractures uh, pertaining to the radius ulna, humerus, tibia, fibula and femur. The intervention that was measured was the use of point-of-care ultrasound to assist with both the diagnosis and reduction of, of relevant fractures within the emergency department. Specific to how they facilitated this process, they used a linear probe, they uh, attempted to get two views, and they used the deepest hyperechoic line as the bone, a disruption to that hyperechoic line as the fracture and then given the two views that they had, they measured various numbers relating to alignment and angles and then the resolution of those disrupted angles and alignments uh, as an indication of the success or failure of reduction. The comparator was plane radiography. So we'll talk a little bit about the sort of processes they went to. They were reasonably extensive database search through MEDLINE and MBASE They excluded some case report stuff and some non-human stuff um, and looked at a variety of parameters, including the types of fractures, the incidences of the fractures, the training that was provided to the various uh, ultrasonographers slash medical students slash clinicians involved, Uh, narrowed it down to about 1,034 studies, 948 were excluded, um, and then a further 72 were excluded after a full text review. So that left us with 30 studies that were included in total. 23 of those studies were for diagnostic purposes, and five were for reduction, and two of them covered both diagnosis and reduction. All of the 30 studies that were included were in unscheduled care environments, so from what I could derive from that, they were all sort of emergency department slash urgent care clinic sort of environments. The next question was sort of whether methodological qualities uh, were corrected for and common forms of research bias were, were accounted for, and Yes, there was a lot of convenient sampling amongst the, the studies that were included in this meta-analysis. There were some concerns about inter-observer reliability of the ultrasound scans that were performed. Only three uh, studies even reported any inter-observer reliability statistics. Sample sizes varied wildly, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. And none of the papers were randomized control trials. Moving on to the results. So I'll split the results into four sections. So there was results for the diagnosis of fractures. Uh, there was results for the reduction success for fractures. And then within the pooled data from all these 30 studies, um, the authors were able to do specific meta-analyses on two specific patient subsets, so paediatric forearm fractures um, and adult ankle fractures. So for the general diagnosis of long bone fractures, the quoted point-of-care ultrasound sensitivity ranged anywhere from 64.7% to 100%, with 20 out of the 25 studies um, achieving sensitivities of more than 90%. The specificity ranged anywhere from 79.2% to 100%, with 21 out of the 25 studies achieving rates of more than 90% specificity. Point-of-care ultrasound was found to have a positive likelihood ratio from 3.11 to infinity, uh, with 19 of the 25 studies having a positive likelihood ratio above 10 and uh, 19 of the 25 studies having a negative likelihood ratio at or below 0.1. That's for the diagnosis of long bone fractures. When assessing for the adequacy of reduction, sensitivity and specificity for adequate reduction with point-of-care ultrasound ranged anywhere from 94% to 100%, and the specificity was 56 to 100% respectively. Just remember again, the gold standard of the comparator arm was x-rays for both diagnosis and reduction. The data was most homogenous for two specific subgroups, so pediatric forearm fractures and ankle fractures, and that allowed the study coordinators to do pooled meta-analysis. For paediatric forearm fractures, the sensitivity was 93% and they gave confidence intervals for these numbers and that was a confidence interval of 87.2 to 96.4 and the specificity of 92.3% with a confidence interval of 86.6 to 96.4. Positive likelihood ratios of 14 and negative likelihood ratios of 0.08. Adult ankle fractures showed a pooled sensitivity uh, of 89% with a confidence interval of 77 to 95 and a specificity of 94% with a confidence interval of 86 to 97 and a positive likelihood ratio of 16 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.2. So, yeah, a lot of percentages, sensitivities and specificities to sort of work your way through. All in all, I think their overall conclusions were needs a bit more work, needs an RCT, pretty good for peds, forearm fractures, pretty good for ankle fractures as a summary they didn't really comment too much on the usefulness in reduction which i think is something we can maybe talk about they did suggest that the this whole sort of area needs further study and i, I do think musculoskeletal ultrasound is um, a reasonable sort of avenue for further study in the emergency department certainly a more controlled environment than our resuscitation um, base so yeah that's sort of what I, what I took away from it
7: can i just say look first of all the diagnosis aspect the sensitivity you know pretty good 90 odd percent yep. right That's just asking the question, is it fractured? Mm -hmm. That's not what we need to know. We need to know comminution, does it involve the joint surface, where across the joint surface, angulation, all that stuff. You can't get much of that from ultrasound. Fancy doing an ultrasound and telling the ortho reg, oh, it's broken. So ultrasound can't tell you all the stuff you need to know and it physically won't be able to because when the ultrasound waves hit the soft tissue bone interface... They're massively reflected, and you can't see much behind it. So we'll never know all the information that we need to know to pick up the phone and call the orthoreg. So sensitivity specificity just refers to this idea of, is it broken? That's not what we need to know. Fracture, yes or no. Yes. Yep. and So it's a bit of a sleight of hand as far as I can tell, right? That's not fair. I want to know, can ultrasound tell you all the bits that you need to know clinically that x-ray can tell you, and it can't, right? So it's a kind of a silly question. Anyway, I wanted to talk about ribs. Kenny, just quick question. Is a rib a bone? I hope so, Richard. Okay. Are ribs long?
4: I suspect they are. They look All right. pretty long so on x This
7: article says they studied long bones, right? Ribs are bone and it's long, so it's clearly some prejudice there. Now, the reason I'm mentioning ribs is because the only time in terms of diagnosis that I've ever found ultrasound useful for diagnosing fractures is rib fractures. You know when you do the x-ray and you can't see the fracture? And they say, no, but doc, it's really sore right there. You put the ultrasound probe on, you can see a step in the cortex. It's happened to me a few times. So you can pick up on ultrasound a rib fracture that you might not be able to see. So I think that's a legit point about the use of ultrasound for diagnosis. The only one that I've found ever useful. Now, uh, so apart from diagnosis, treatment. I can see that there might be a role in you reduce, uh, say, a forearm, and then you put the ultrasound probe on in real time while you're sedating the 80-year-old lady and to see if you want to keep trying to reduce it, uh, if it's in a good position. What's the alternative? You kind of guess that it's in a good position clinically. You stop the sedation, wait half an hour for the x-ray, and then say, oh, no, I need to push it some more. So I can see a role for real-time ultrasound in the, in the reduction of fractures. So that's something worth pursuing. Yeah, Apart for sure. That just further
3: on your point, I know the wrist uh, fractures sort of not really in the scope of what we just talked about, but I think it is an interesting... Um prospect for the use of of point-of-care ultrasound. So the the Royal College of Emergency Medicine over in the UK did like an hour and a half podcast on the rates of operative fixation for all reductions done in the ED. One of the sort of purported suggestions was, you know, in the absence of fluoroscopy, using um, POCUS to delineate the satisfactory nature of a risk reduction may potentially benefit patients in that they might have reduced rates of operative fixation. I mean, there's always the risk that's always going to need an operation and you're just pulling it for comfort's sake. Um, but particularly in that geriatric population where the risks of an operation are not insignificant, there might be a role for POCUS to play in that in that situation. Kenny, have you had much experience in, the, in this sort of situation? Yeah, so
4: uh, taking on from the therapeutic point of view, I think there are two aspects which I I think the role POCUS can be useful for. One is, as you, as we've all been mentioning, is the use of it in live reduction I see this as a subcategory, so what I mean by that is personal belief is that if you can actually clinically feel the fracture in someone who's very thin, who doesn't have much swelling, then you might find that the role of POCUS in that regards might be reduced, but the role of POCUS in terms of for helping you with reduction may be in the ones who've come in delayed and then arm or the wrist is now completely swollen and therefore you can't feel any landmarks to help guide your reduction, and I think that the, the utility of using POCUS is much more in that regards as well. Also, for ones where you potentially don't want to yank on it too many times, there could be another role for poker, such as the elderly patients who have fragile skins and you're worried worried about skin breakages and and wound breakages as a result of aggressive or recurrent reductions as well. The other therapeutic benefits I still see as well is in people who you don't necessarily want to undergo a procedural sedation and you want to do a hematoma block, the use of POCUS potentially could improve or guide your needle into the right area for the hematoma block and subsequently may give you much better analgesic properties. And I think there is a role for that as well, particularly in the ones who... I've got significant deformity or, or again, significant swelling, and you're not sure where the landmark is, and you don't want to blindly get a needle and step it um, and stab it in and step along the way to the fracture point, it might just mean that you get, one, more accuracy, two, you get less pain, and three, you minimise the complications of doing a hematoma block through recurrent puncture or recurrent stabbings as well.
3: Yeah, I I can speak to that. I had a patient
4: the other week who was getting routinely
3: drug tested as part of his court parole and had um, fractured his distal radius, and it needed a um, needed some moulding, uh, and he refused any and all sedation because he was super paranoid that anything would come up on his um, drug testing. I did an ultrasound-guided hematoma block. It was amazing. It was really good. It worked really well for him. Um, just to your point, Richard, I understand what you're saying about the diagnostic failures of ultrasound, particularly with the inability to appreciate angulation and things. I'd be interested to know what you think in the context of patients with low pretest probability for fractures. So I think if you look at how particularly I can speak to our department here at Westmead in terms of our adherence to rules like the Ottawa ankle rule and the foot rule, maybe not the foot rule because the the foot fractures are sort of out of the context of this study, but when I was reading this about the diagnostic sensitivity and specificity, particularly the sensitivity um, in, uh, in this context with adult ankle fractures, if the question is more, I don't think this patient has a fracture... And instead of just sort of reflexively organing, organizing X rays for everyone who comes in with a sore ankle, which is in a very practical sense what ends up happening, if you could screen them as being low pretest probability from the various rules that we have, I know they already have pretty good sensitivity and specificity those those ankle and knee rules, and then you add an, add on to that an ultrasound that's negative, um, would would that be helpful?
7: No, I'd still do an X ray if I thought there was a fracture. An ultrasound is so focal and localized, it's like being on the street and standing under a street light and looking for your keys under the street light, you can't look anywhere else. I want to have a proper view of the whole area. I'd still do an x-ray.
3: In terms of the reduction for paediatric forearm fractures as well, I think there was some talk in this paper about how useful that would be in terms of active reduction and achieving an appropriate alignment of, of bones and using that as a diagnostic tool as well because the paediatric forearm fractures very rarely have significant communition there were almost always some variation on a on severity from what we'd call a green stick fracture you know, in a particular age group. In that situation, would you still be X-raying those patients?
7: Yeah, because the GP in the clinic is going to do an X-ray. They won't act without the X-rays. So yeah.
3: It doesn't yeah.
0: save us an
7: X-ray.
3: Yeah, no, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, I guess that, that was the sort of thing, whether or not it would end up... In, if the patient in their clinical journey at some point would still end up getting an X-ray. Yeah, it doesn't save us.
0: And I guess it would be quite hard for us to perform like an ultrasound on a child because they're usually... Monke in a of lot blind. of pain. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, no, it is it is true. Uh, but I think there probably is a role in, in live reduction, though. Absolutely. Um, especially in those cases, uh, to, to, to appreciate whether or not you've done a good job. Because kids is one scenario where you don't really want to be resedating them mm-hmm. again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can spare an, an operative fixation, you're probably also doing them the world of good as more and more data comes or, out. With or
7: a resedation.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's data coming out now that GAs in, in kids is not not great. Uh, f- and so, you know, you'd, um, if you can avoid one, I think that would be beneficial.
5: In a patient, like a paediatric patient with an x-ray that is very unhelpful and ongoing pain, is there data to suggest that ultrasound is a, new, a useful adjunct there to potentially identify a small fracture?
3: When you say that, the first thing I think about is elbow x-rays. Is that (laughs) sort of what you're thinking about? Well, like,
5: I mean, from my PEDS term, there are a lot of suspected radial head fractures, for example, that all get casted. And I I mean, whether you'd, you know, potentially identify that on an ultrasound and that might help. I think... I I don't know. Yeah, look, I
3: think it is very... Just thinking from a very practical standpoint, having... I don't think there's any literature to... All this literature is now very new, musculoskeletal ultrasound, sort of like an emerging thing... I just think if you're thinking to answer your specific question about the radial head, I don't really know if you could get a great view of a radial head on an ultrasound. I think the the advocacy from our orthopedic colleagues has always been, if it behaves like a fracture, just treat it like a fracture in that acute setting for pediatrics um, and then re-X-ray them in, in a X, Y, Z period of time.
7: The other thing is you're saying to someone, Oh, see that swelling where it hurts when I touch it? Can I push this ultrasound probe there, please? No, no one's going to let you do that.
3: I wonder if, there's, if there would be something to be said for maybe like a supracondylar, like, like the, the sort of grade one ones that are very, very occult. Um, maybe, because that would probably be a bit easier to, to image than the radial head, for example, and would have therapeutic implications because, uh, you know, if you miss those, that's potentially radial head fracture, I mean, it doesn't really change the management all that significantly. There might be a, y- a yield there and, you know, you're looking directly at the cortex. Maybe from an anatomical perspective, it might change. But I don't think, my question to you would be, if your ultrasound was normal, <laughs> would you not treat it with a plaster? And then in that case, then are you're doing the ultrasound, you may as well just treat it as a plaster and repeat the x-ray. Yeah. It is a very difficult question on a very pragmatic level. I think mm-hmm. You can tout the sensitivities and specificities as much as you want, but in terms of what are you actually going to do the next patient you see, I don't, I don't really think it will necessarily change what I do from a diagnostic point of view. Does that answer your question?
5: Yeah, no, I was just was wondering whether you could flip it and, you know, <laughs> use yeah. it as the second line diagnosis.
4: I think from um, a lot of times, if uh, if the answer's still not clear on, you know, either, you know, the first X-ray or the serial X-rays, um, some of the bodies have been going towards MRIing these particular areas, particularly if they're over joints and, and things like that. And you'll probably see that in and the way that the government's actually rebating some of these as well. So particularly with under-16-year-olds, there is a lot more GP-rebatable MRIs, particularly for limb suspected limb fractures, um, based on that grounds to say that, you know, they do recognise that there are limitations of x-rays um, and that CT as the next modality may not be the appropriate uh, long term treatment of a suspected fracture may also have its you know morbidity as well so therefore they turn into another modality, modality um, and i think the modality they're thinking about is an mri for obvious reasons in terms of um, risk but uh, of course you know uh, there is a cost involved with it as well
3: yeah it's an interesting point going forward i think it'll be i'll be curious to see how accurate mri is in the diagnosis of acute fractures yeah it's an interesting area for sure
0: Take-home points um, for our listeners, Pramod?
3: Look, I think it's hard to see how ultrasound would replace x-ray as an imaging modality, especially with the ease of access. I'm a firm believer that the radiation risks that have been quoted from x-ray have long been overstated by the medical community. um, And with the benefits of diagnostic yield being so high, I I think you'd be hard-pressed to avoid x-raying things. However, I do think there's a really strong argument to be made for the use of um, ultrasound in assessing for adequacy of reduction, particularly in certain patient populations. Um, and I think that would be a really interesting area for future study to see whether POCUS-guided risk reductions rem- decrease operative fixations. I think that would be an interesting question to have answered in the future.
0: Thanks. That time that you've all been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kids Corner.
8: Thanks, Moda. We've all missed travel in the age of COVID. The romance and the nostalgia of rocking up to the airport and realizing that you've missed the perfect opportunity to withdraw your foreign currency at a reasonable rate. Nonetheless, I'm placated by the intricate, and in many ways excessive, designs that uh, fiscal instruments like banknotes bring to bear, the Houses of Parliament on the British banknotes and famous people on our Australian notes, and the Euro notes are no exception to this. Does anyone remember the famous bridges of Europe that feature on these notes? Well, Caroline, I'm afraid you're wrong. When these notes were first designed, there was such consternation as to which countries would have their bridges featured... Every country wanted their bridge, and no one wants to see infighting in Europe. And it really blew up into a diplomatic incident. And so eventually it was decided that they'd just make up bridges. So none of the bridges on Euro notes actually exist. They're all fictitious, hypothetical bridges. What a compromise, right? Everyone's happy. And the story ends there, but it doesn't, because the Dutch didn't like this at all. I mean, after all, a French man had his signature on all the notes. So why can't they have bridges? And one Dutch architect, Robert Stam, thought, hey, let's just build them. And so that's how the Netherlands have all the bridges on Euro banknotes.
7: Thank you, Kid. I'm seeing a parallel between uh, fictitious bridges and research findings. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much everyone for sticking it through to the end of this podcast we hope you learned something new i would like to thank our presenters oliver hung and Pramod, as well as our guest ed consultants richard and kenny for their contributions and time you can find all the links to today's articles in our show notes and if you have any questions feedback or suggestions or if you would like to be involved please email us at bestmeetedjournalclub at gmail.com we hope to be in your ears in a month's time thank you